Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. Whoa, what is up, folks? We're back, and it's crazy to be back. A quick little update from me, if you've been a fan of the solo podcast episodes for a while, these kind of ranty, newsy things, and you haven't really been keeping up with what's been happening with the Demi Skills course and with Voyager's Table ramping up and kind of heading back to in-person events, which is wild to me, and just overall how I've been strategically thinking about this whole creating online thing that I do, I wanted to effectively get off the news treadmill for a little bit. I was stocking those solo updates with story after story after story, and I'm not going to be the guy to report the news, right? Like, it's it, I'm just a one-man band, and I did a ton of listening and reading to Philip DeFranco and Daniel Schmachtenberger and David Perel and Anthony Pompliano and Chris Williamson. Basically, all these guys who have done a really amazing job with putting out content that helps people think better and be more um, agent, be, be better agents in their own lives. And I hope I've never come across this way, but I've, I've, I've never, like I said, been that person to be the first person that you hear something from. I just don't have a big editorial staff, and I don't have that gossipy of a network, and I don't particularly like gossip. No one comes to me first with the story and says, hey, Justin, we want you to be the one to break the story, right? And, and I'm also not a journalist who's always constantly working on my next story, and I got to this kind of like pessimistic place with looking at um, solo podcast episodes. However, I do think that you listeners, the folks that are out there in the world working to advance yourselves, to build your skills, or to effectively launch your own thing someday, you don't always have the time to process the news. Or frankly, some of you don't have the desire to process the news. You look to sources of news as the combination of facts and then a informed opinion. And so my lens for these solo episodes now, that the way that I'm thinking about it now, isn't isn't breaking the news, but learning from the news. And how we look at events and the things that have happened and the stories that people share and, and make sure that we're either applauding the right things or we're looking at how the market responds to stories and making sure that we either look at them from first principles, right? I talk about that a ton in the newsletter, or we build up this muscle of not getting swept up in sensationalism or tribal he said, she said kind of dynamics, right? So that's my small rant. The solo episodes will be sporadic and varied, uh, kind of like today, for example, I, I, I hit a critical mass of three stories that I was really excited to talk about, um, and I'm just excited to dig into it. But first, in typical solo podcast fashion, let's talk about today's beverage, uh, throwback to like OG days, Grapefruit LaCroix, and I am on the tail end of my Chemex from this morning. And so... I'm actually going to need both of these. I I go for a run on a track on Tuesdays. Today's Tuesday. And there was a guy there who was just like, he was really competitive and he wanted to like, he wanted to do sprints with me. And I do 300s. So it's not, and he was only doing 200s. And so I would do the 200 racing him and then I would have an extra 100 meters left. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I've shared this, but I have a, um, it's not like a, it's not asthma, but it's like exercise induced wheezing. So I might be like pausing to cough or taking a few extra sips of today's beverage 
beverages today. Um, and last piece, quick shameless plug before we go into the stories. Since we last spoke, I think, on a solo episode, I'm sure the folks who listen to the interviews know, Patreon is no longer a thing. Uh, I've since moved to a model where there's basically just one price to support the content. It's just five bucks a month, so like a dollar twenty-five a week, or a dollar a week plus tax, however you want to talk about it. And it's super easy to just set it and forget it. Um, you once you sign up, you automatically get an email whether or not you want to be a part of the community, where it's basically just professionals that get to share. There's this cool event for pastry chefs coming up, or I want to buy this knife. Does anybody happen to own it or know what what to think about it, or I have this question about staging in the UK, who should I be talking to kind of thing. And just massive props to the the OG kind of founding members of that community. If you're a part of that, thank you again for your support. And ultimately, that's where I post a couple of fun bonus content pieces like unboxing of gear that comes in in the mail or if you want to get a heads up when future podcast gets, guests are coming. That's always available for free, by the way. If you go to justinconnacom slash media, I create a confirmed page for future guests. And then on those blog posts, you can just post your questions and then um, my production assistant adds those to my Notion page, and so then I can ask your questions as part of my interview. And it's very top of mind because a, a recent guest, one of my best parts of the interview, one of my favorite parts of the interview came from one of your folks' questions. And so please ask questions if um, you see someone on that page and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool to see what they do, and I would be interested in getting their thoughts on XYZ. And, you know, there's obviously no pressure to join this, but after four years of grappling with having a Patreon, I'm so genuinely happy and finally satisfied uh, with this setup for, you know, audience-supported model. And I'm really, really stoked uh, to be able to do this stuff. So if you want to head over there, that's in the description of this podcast. So I got to navigate my notion here. I have such a fancy setup now, and I'm so happy with it. Okay, jumping in. Let's talk about the Lumi Island Willows Inn Blaine Wetzel scandal that is going down right now, and the ripples are still happening, whether or not uh, it's on your Twitter feed or in the news, because a ton of you folks sent this to me. It's clearly a close-to-home story for me personally. Lumi Island is just a short drive and ferry ride away from me here in Seattle, and I'll absolutely be starting the story with some full transparency. One, no, I have never eaten at the Willows Inn. Two, yes, one of my best friends in the world and previous Emulsion podcast guest, John Miller, has been working there through COVID, basically. And he was kind of like um, wine director, then moved to beverage manager and, you know, dabbled in some other front of house management stuff. And when he got the news that all this was happening, and after seeing Blaine's response specifically, and I'm kind of, you know, paraphrasing from phone calls I've had with him, he has since given his resignation, so he's not working at Willow's Inn anymore. He saw what was happening, and he just kind of, you know, gave his notice. And overall, there's kind of two schools of thought here in Seattle from my boots-on-the-ground perspective, from me seeing friends of mine posting on Twitter and having some one-off conversations. One, Lumi Island is either this mind-blowing, completely novel experience, and it's completely worth the time to get there and the price you pay for the whole shebang, and the opposite— I don't find that there's a lot of people that are in between. And the opposite, which tends to be, you know, it's incredibly disappointing. They're trying too hard. They're this wannabe Scandinavian place. It's too overrated, etc. And I'm breaking this into three sections for this piece because it's such an exhaustive article and there's so much we could talk about. This could be its own podcast. I want to talk about the article contents. I want to talk about Blaine's response specifically. And then I want to give some additional context and dig into some of the individual points here. So let's read a bit of the story. The title is... 
At Blaine Wetzel's Willows Inn, employees report years of workplace abuse. And then there's another kind of like subtitle to the to the article. But let's talk about some quotes. Quote, since he took over the kitchen at the Willows Inn, this is talking about Blaine, it has become a global destination, fully booked nearly every night of its annual season from April to December. Culinary pilgrims come from come for multi-course dinners of foraged dandelions, custards infused with roasted birch bark, and salmon pulled from Pacific waters they can see from the dining room. After dinner, they float up to one of the Lux rustic bedrooms and wake up to wild blackberries and long fermented sourdough. And then it continues to say, quote, beyond the food, they come for the story and pay at least $500 to live in it for a night. And end quote, because I want to give some context. You can get back to Seattle, but like the, the timing of the ferries conflict sometimes with the ending of the meal. And so for most people, it's just more practical to stay on the island. And so it's this kind of combination of you have the meal and then you stay in one in the, it's an inn, you know, you, st- you book a room and you stay for the night. Quote, going back into the article, quote, but 35 former staff members who spoke to the New York Times said that story, the one that Mr. Wetzel sells, tells to diners, to the media, and to aspiring chefs who come to Lumi to learn from him, is deeply misleading, end quote. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, uh, I have one more quote, and then I'm going to get into some thoughts here. Quote, for years, they said Mr. Wetzel's culinary pedigree and the Willow's idyllic image have hidden an ugly reality that includes routine faking of island ingredients— physical intimidation, and verbal abuse by Mr. Wetzel, including racist, sexist, and homophobic slurs, and sexual harassment of female employees by male kitchen staff members. In March, the Willows agreed to pay $600,000 to settle settle a class action lawsuit after a 2017 federal investigation confirmed accounts of wage theft and other unfair labor practices. So basically alluding to, end quote, of course, alluding to the fact that this isn't their first time in hot water, um, and just kind of continuing on with, with this, they're not calling it a trend, but they're saying this isn't the first time that they've been, you know, hit, hit with something. So that's effectively the gist of the piece. Again, please read the article in full if you haven't already. And I'm not saying there isn't more because there absolutely is from stories from previous employees to the accusation from a guest that it was that they were vegan. And then they said that the restaurant served them a dish with animal product in it to Blaine's responses themselves, which I will quote in a second. But I want to start with this kind of overarching take that I've seen people throw at this piece that's effectively summed up by this kind of shrug and the statement, well, yeah, Lumi Island and Willow's Inn isn't the only restaurant in the industry that does this, right? Effectively saying the Willow's is getting the profile and the article and the New York Times thing and the mob called act for them on the internet but take any one of these issues and put enough industry professionals in a room together, and I can't imagine that hands wouldn't go up if you asked anyone who works at a place that allows for, let's call it physical intimidation, I think hands would go up. Verbal abuse, hands would go up. Sexual slurs or harassment, or the list goes on, right? And it or, you know, doesn't always source consistently with the product that they're using, right? Is that the goal of this journalist? you know, to kind of spend months researching this piece and interviewing 35 people and packaging it all up and dropping it like a missile on this place, hoping that the impact will cause all restaurants to change overnight? Possibly. You know, I'm not sure. I I, I do think it's clear that the individual instances that got reported, even if it's a class action lawsuit, didn't cause folks to not want to go to Lummi Island, right? 2017 happened and they clearly bounced back. They were just as busy as ever. So that was not enough to get people to, you know, take a look more closely at their business practices or 
incentivize Lumi to want to, you know, implement huge changes. And while those folks are right to say, you know, this happens at a ton of places, why is Willow's in getting called out? There has to be two things in place in a, in a situation like this, in my opinion. One, examples of this getting shared and more importantly condemned. So like looking at it as actually this is bad, we should not be doing this. And number two, paths towards redemption for the folks that are involved. And the first bit is happening here, right? In, in, in a way that has much more social and cultural backing compared to the days of, I think if anybody has ever read something like Kitchen Confidential, where yes, the stories would be shared, but that was always just, you know, part of the job or, you know, oh, it comes with the territory, right? If you can't handle the heat, right? That's the classic antidote, anecdote. And if we want organizations to have a massively engaged, excited, positively attitude-oriented pool of talent to hire from, the condemning part has to happen too. Because someone coming up might get excited about this idea of, you know, being in an intense environment that forces them to better themselves and, you know, puts them uh, under stress where they can prove that they have the mental fortitude to push through things. But like, it has to be known that this is not okay. And we don't, we as a, as a, and as, as, a, as an industry of professionals don't allow this, right? There's no, we can't gaslight people or try to spin it and say it never happened or say something like, you don't understand, because we as a culture have done our fair share of behaviors in the past, and we look back and say, you know, that wasn't the really most ab admirable behavior that we could have done, was it? And I'm sure you can think of examples yourself, but remember how we would just, like, in the past, allow smoking to happen in restaurants or on airplanes? There's, like, movies. There's current video footage of this happening. And it seems so disrespectful now if someone were to, like, pull out a cigarette and light it in the middle of a crowded restaurant. But that was just par for the course years ago, right? And that's an example of, you know, culture can change. I know it's not exactly apples to apples, but culture can change relatively quickly as well. That was a recent memory, right? And you're, you're absolutely seeing a little bit of that with the publication of this article. And, you know, continuing on talking about the path to redemption piece, remember, those are my two things. We have to share the stories and condemn them. And then two, there has to be a path to redemption. And I think this is something that I've continually hammered home before with some of you in private conversations and on previous solo podcasts, when so-and-so gets canceled or there's public outrage at XYZ person, and yes, we're going to get to Blaine's responses in a bit because I'm not saying that he deserves to go right back to what he was doing, I think there has to be some sort of time to work on yourself, to step away from the environment that you're in, to delegate responsibilities that you might have to other people, to, you know if that's what's needed to keep the organization going, and then be able to share how the growth that you've experienced has put you in a place to be reinstalled and rehired at the org in, in the role that you want, right? There's a big thing at Shopify where all of the C-suite teams, basically all the executive leadership at the company, they have to get hired back at their for their current role. I think it's every year, every two years, or something like that. And I think that that's a really interesting way to think about it is, can you go do the work that's required and then basically prove that you are in a good place to get reinstated in the role that you're in? I think that would be an interesting, you know, way to go about it because then it kind of takes it as objectively as we can, understanding that there's going to be these subjective factors regardless. But, you know, some people absolutely disagree here. And I can semi-empathize with not wanting to trust someone who has displayed certain types of behavior in the past. But in my view... 
it's the clearest and most humane way to actually move society forward and change the culture. Because what happens if we don't do it and people can just stay canceled? Then what happens, right? I don't think that gets often played out. It's very satisfying to just block someone or leave a hateful comment or do whatever. When in reality, like there's a lot of pain that's often going on. And it's, it's what is that uh, quote? It's don't, um, don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. Sometimes people just don't know or that that's all, that's all they do know. They don't know what it's like to, to be more professional or be in an environment where this is um, not the way you have to act or behave. And, you know, this idea that uh, we'll never forgive them or they don't deserve to cook anymore or whatever statements might get thrown around are so inflammatory on Twitter or in an Instagram story that it, it riles people up. And it's this kind of like, oh, shit kind of reaction when you see stuff like that because you're like, I don't want that to happen to me. And when we see someone getting completely annihilated online, regardless of how fucked up their behavior was, it's not productive to just cast that person out of out of society and leave them for dead. I just don't think that's the way to do it. And notice I'm not saying there has to be this, you know, public-facing, PR'd-to-death, YouTuber-sobbing apology video that anybody has to post to, quote, prove they're sorry, right? Because that's not actually getting anything done either, right? The, 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 thing, the place we want to get to, I would hope, is to admit fault, actually admit you did something wrong, don't gaslight yourself or anybody, understand why it was wrong, be able to you know, steel man the other side, be able to say why it was hurtful or incorrect or whatever, and then do the work to learn how to be a better functioning professional. And for people that don't know about these like solo podcasts, I write everything out and then picture that I'm just, you know, reading. I do the video for YouTube. And that's just because it makes me less of a rambling uh, nutcase. But I think that world where there is a clearly, and it's not going to be exactly the same for everybody, but normalizing people going on a redemption path, I think that would be a, the kind of world that I would want to live in. But it wouldn't require these kind of scathing hit pieces to be written because there would just be a conversation with leadership, right? They would say, hey, you know, Chef needs to take some time away. There are some issues he's working through and he'll be back in eight months. That's a clear path to redemption, not, oh, this editorial piece has to come out where they reveal all of the skeletons in our closet. And now that causes you to do that work. If people, if we normalized this and people saw it as like, hey, I'm actually really struggling with this. And again, listen to the time frames I'm talking about. Eight months. Eight months is a long time to work on yourself and go to, you know, therapy or pick up an exercise routine or like whatever people have to do. There's different tools. But we still, as a culture, deciding what is enough and what is just kind of going through the motions to check the box, we're still deciding what that is. And so, you know, please tweet at me or pop a comment below on YouTube with your thoughts on this because like... I want those two things. I would hope that those two things become a little bit more popularized. So let's move on to my, my point number two. Let's talk about Blaine's comments because there are two that were quoted that, I, that I'm going to quote here. And I want to read them and, and do my best to shed a little light on why people are so pissed off and then hopefully distill some lessons from there. So the first quote is, quote, Wetzel said he had never used any racist language of any kind. Quote, my step mom and brother are Chinese, my wife is Mexican, and anyone that would claim that I was racist is lying, end quote. That's what, that's what Blaine said. So the first quote, oh, well, let me read the second quote too. Quote, Mr. Wetzel said, quote, 
I support female chefs with all my heart, so much so that I married one. That's in parentheses. Anyone that would claim that I don't support female chefs is lying. End quote. So the first quote, the piece about using racist language, denying it, calling the accusers a liar, and backing it up with other non-white people in his life as kind of like, see, I'm close to people that aren't white, I can't possibly be racist, it's not a great response. And the piece explains this a bit, saying that some of the Asian American employees, quote, used to laugh it off and give Blaine the benefit of the doubt, fully believing it was ignorance, end quote. Again, that's a little bit of our malice, stupidity piece. It's another one of those changes we're experiencing in culture. Like, to do an imitation of an accent or to call someone a slang term that culture has created for your race or where you come from was so incredibly common when I started cooking over 10 years ago in kitchens. And I'm not talking about the really hurtful ones, but the jokey ones. And we're, we're all coming around to now saying, hey, that's actually not okay to do anymore. And it makes people uncomfortable, right? And when that happens, words start to twist and get distorted. So the truly racist people, at least from what I'm noticing, latch on to those words or that behavior and use them as a proxy for being actually racist. What do I mean by that? So I'm half Indian, right? My dad's skin is absolutely browner than mine. My, my mother's genes were much stronger. My white mother's genes were much stronger than my dad's on skin tone. His nose, not so much. But people in high school, and especially when I was, went to school on the East Coast, used to call me brownie. Like, an Indian person that I went to um, culinary school with, she would call me brownie as well. Did I take offense to that? No, not, not, not really. But, but when the way worse terms that people use to describe Indian people get completely blacklisted, and us as a society deem it's, it's not okay to say these other words, the racists among us might take words like brownie and say them with the intent of those worse words. Am I making sense? I hope I'm making sense. And of course, I'm not giving Blaine a pass here, but that could be potentially what happened. Trying to play devil's advocate, and I know that can be incredibly annoying in, in situations like this because it's easy just to say, oh, well, he's a racist. But when, was, was there an instance when he was thinking to himself, no, I've never used any racist language of any kind when responding to this article? Because to him, he was saying something with completely different intent. He was, yes, he said the words, he didn't mean them to be racist, but when you're talking to a New York Times reporter and the person says, hey, what did he used to say? And he say, well, he used to call me brownie. And they say, hey, that's, you know, a, a negative word that talks about your race. I heard other people saying brownie in this other context. That's not so great. And the better response here, trying to keep it productive, should have been something to the effect of, and I'm not a PR person, so anybody that writes real PR stuff can rip apart this response. Something like, I spoke with my colleagues and peers. It was brought to my attention that my language was incredibly damaging to members of the team and to the guests. And I mean no ill intent by my words. Of course, if that's true, we don't know. He would have to mean it. Because either you said it or you didn't. It's not, whether, it's not about whether you think it was racist or not here, right? It's about someone feeling like they're being discriminated against based on their race. 
And that's where I think his response with this quote fell short of the mark. So let's talk about the, the female chefs piece. I'll read it one more time. Quote, I support female chefs with all my heart, so much so that I married one. Anyone that I would claim I anyone that would claim I don't support female chefs is lying. Okay, second quote. Marrying a female chef isn't supporting female chefs. I'll say it right there. It's a marrying a female chef is a personally motivated decision that you made based on who you want to spend the rest of your life with, not how you operate your business. Two very different things. There's actually this incredibly fascinating thing I read the other day, and I, I, I'm not being a lazy podcaster. I tried to Google this so I could give credit where credit is due. Nothing that came up matched, so someone comment or tweet at me if you have the research, but it was all about the dichotomy between areas of your life where you can be the most organized line cook in the world. You've always got your station set up. You're super clean. You're organized. You make lists, but your living room is constantly a mess. Same person two different areas of their life in very different states. Or, you know, you're incredibly attentive with your colleagues and your clients at work, but you can't seem to communicate with your family, right? Same person, same action or behavior, communication, you thrive in one environment and you suck in another environment. And that's why I call a bit of bullshit on this response because it's not the same thing to have married a female chef versus fostering a culture in your organization that prioritizes giving women leadership opportunities or giving promotions based on, you know, something like tenure or merit that would, you know, people in the article have expressed frustrations on or whatever types of structures and frameworks exist. Because a lot of that is having to unlearn, and this is me projecting potentially, but Blaine observed a lot in other people's kitchens, and that's what he took to his own project. It was a very limited set of experiences when he started uh, the island in, when was it? It was many years ago. He was 24, by the way, 23, 24. If there was no clear example of female leadership in his life, especially in professional kitchens, it's just this mental model that he's had built into his source code. And in such a male-dominated industry, you can go your entire career, you can cook for 35 years, 40 years, without ever working with a woman above you in the organization. And I suspect for someone who's so, what it seems like, ego-driven, this might be the reasoning behind the behavior. And again, I'm not excusing it or even, you know, making an attempt to normalize it, but understanding it, like, where, where does this come from, I think is maybe a better place to start. And this is very much so on Blaine, unfortunately, you know, dictating the culture from the top down. There's a lot of uh, work that's been done on that as far as researching um, company cultures and does it come from the bottom up? Does it come from middle management? In as many, you know, case studies as I've read and businesses that I've been trying to pay attention to and biographies I've read and, you know, CEO interviews that I've been listening to, it's a top down thing. It's very difficult to change the culture unless it's from top down. Let's keep going. Last up, you know, this is maybe, you know, some additional context um, because I've never eaten at Willow's Inn before. Again, one of you forwarded me the email from the community. Thank you. Um, you know who you are. Because 
I've never received any comms from them, and they sent out a mass email to everybody who's ever eaten at Willow's Inn before. So let's touch on, I think this might be just as important, not because I hope that any of you have to bail yourself out and do a whole PR thing because you're going to have a disaster someday, but there's so many. I read this and I was like, oh, geez, this is not the right way to do it. And so I want to talk through this piece, this email that Willow's Inn sent to all of the guests, and we can dissect it a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm apologizing in advance if this is a bit long, but I want to read it and then intersperse my thoughts between it. So to start, quote, we are so saddened by the stories from our former staff that were published in the New York Times last week. It has been extremely difficult to hear these accusations and read these comments from people that we worked with so closely for years. In the past several days, we have put all our time and energy into supporting our current team and our families, end quote. So right off the bat, super not good by literally passing the blame onto the staff and the New York Times, right? Not only that, but what if you aren't on food Twitter or you don't read Eater or you don't keep in touch with what the Willows Inn is up to and you just went to go eat there in 2017 and you just haven't really read your emails from them and now all of a sudden that's how you're going to start this whole thing? Now... I, as a guest, have to go do my own research to hear what these accusations are. You're, you're, off, you're offloading that information source of truth to the New York Times. Not saying that New York Times is wrong, but like, it's, it's starting off on the back foot. Also, I'm almost positive, and this is information from my friends that have worked there, they didn't close the restaurant. So that's also a bit of a strange statement that they've been putting all their time and energy into supporting the current team, you could say that they're doing that so that they can, you know, keep the paychecks going. But I have a feeling they did some sort of, like, weird scramble with half of the staff because a lot of them left, and they had to keep accommodating the guests who were coming to the restaurant. So semi-weird to be doing two things. Lying, not lying, but, like, passing the buck, starting off on the back foot, and then again, like, misconstruing what you're saying when you're saying, oh, we've been working so hard and doing all our energy, blah, blah, blah. Going back into it, quote, we recognize that the culture of our workplace in the past has caused people undue stress both emotionally and physically. The restaurant industry for too long has created a culture that applies an extreme amount of pressure on everyone involved to create perfection from a chaotic environment. The hours are too long, the margins are too thin, and the accepted norms of behavior are too extreme. While we want to defend ourselves for what we feel like is a biased mischaracterization of our team and our sourcing practices, it is much more important for us to take accountability for the past and create a better future. One point that must be clarified further is that no one on our team has ever reported sexual harassment or misconduct in the workplace to our management team. The sources from this article about those behaviors are absolutely devastating and can never be tolerated. End quote. Again, acknowledging the issues but blaming it on the workplace, not individual people. Okay, right? Talking about the industry, trying to pass it off as, well, this is just how it is. And then this very strange, like, put up the shield, but then take it down kind of statement. We want to defend ourselves, but we're not going to. I don't really back that, because if the journalist is reporting inaccurately, say that. Defend yourself. Getting mad that the journalist is writing about your mismanaged organization, now that's another thing. Misreporting and actually telling stories about things that have happened are two very different things. It's also super fucked up that the one thing they attempt to defend 
basically has no legs to stand on. If your manager is the one that's sexually harassing you, how are you supposed to come in, sit them down for the, for the conversation and report them to themselves? So it's like they, they yes, you're right. <laughs> no one reported it. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Let's keep going. Quote, in recent years, we have made intentional efforts to improve our hiring practices, provide HR support for our team, and maintain a supportive and creative environment. We've adapted our schedules to give employees shorter workdays and more time off and better wages. In addition, we are bringing an HR representative in-house to help support our team and provide them with an outlet for any issues. We also plan to provide further education and training for our management team in the areas of leadership, inclusion, and diversity. Moving forward, we will also create a paid internship program with free housing to create better opportunities for a wider range of backgrounds in our kitchen. This work must continue and will be the priority of, for all of us. The Willows Inn and the industry as a whole needs to rally in support of the amazing individuals and create that create memorable experiences every night for guests around the world. No one from any level of experience or department should be treated with anything but the utmost respect for their dedication to hospitality. It is our mission to move forward with the intentional gratitude and graciousness that will make our families, colleagues, and community proud, end quote. And so it's more deflecting, more attempting to like straw man themselves saying, look, we can't be that bad. We shortened our work days, right? That's not what the accusations are about, dude. Also, the management training is solid. The paid and subsidized internships programs are great. And I'm hopefully, I'm hopeful that this can all result in positive change. I really, really do hope that. Like, this isn't worth pointing fingers and watching the car crash happen if it doesn't result in lessons for all of us. And so I'll share one last musing that I've kind of been thinking about. You're coming off a stint of working at some great restaurants. Most of them abroad. You're incredibly inspired by what you experienced. And you see an opportunity that's got some promise. And so you open your own place. And you're 24. And one of the reasons that people are drawn to you is because you have this pedigree. You've worked at some great places. Plus, you happen to use some local products. Something you learned at some of these great places. And you want to make a name for yourself. So instead of using that pedigree as your competitive advantage, it needs to be your ingredients now. Combo that with the fact that when the critics start to come, I'm using a piece from Bill Addison as an example in this quick story. He shares in his piece that, quote, at this time of year, when the harvests are generous and the fishermen's nets steadily come in full, around 80% of the food that Wetzel serves will come from this nine square mile island, end quote. And when these critics that come to see you have their meal and they ask you, hey, chef, what makes you so special? What's your philosophy? We've heard all these great things about you. And you have this feeling that you have to keep that shtick going. Because what do you have if you take away the exclusiveness of the ingredients? You have this ego that says you don't want to rely on you're just the chef that worked at so-and-so. So then, again, I'm trying to play this chess game out. You start thinking, why should guests drive and get on a ferry to stay overnight if I'm not using these ingredients? And then the doubt sets in. And then you get scared, and then you're on edge at work, and then you need to blow off steam, so you get drunk after service. And then you're more on edge the next day, because you're hungover, and you say something rude and offensive to someone as a snap. And then when all the pressure is on you to do the PR, and write the menus, and manage the staff, and do the books, if you aren't equipped to handle that, this kind of stuff, 
all the previous scandals they've been a part of. That happens. And all of that is said to say, Blaine isn't a bad person. Blaine, the person, at that stage of his life, in that environment, with those types of pressures and lack of understanding, did bad things. And it sucks. Because Willow's statement is semi-correct. Those behaviors can never be tolerated. But they were tolerated. And now it's on them to see where we go from here. I actually have a couple comments in the circle community that I kind of want to like poke through real quick because I want to share some, you know, thoughts that weren't mine. For everybody that doesn't know, I post in the industry news space in the community. Uh, I, you know, will just share the piece and then you folks can comment on it and let me know your thoughts. And then I use it as kind of like when I'm writing these, these sorts of things. So quote, Jordan says, I think these stories can provide valuable lessons for the new generation of chefs. This is the reality of various places in the industry, and I think there's hope for some positive change. And then he does he does clarify, these allegations in that story go far beyond any typical rough kitchen environment. The nasty stories from this place never seem to end. Um, Tyler says, quote, super disappointed after reading this article. I've read both of his books, and until now, I've truly wanted to go and work there in some capacity. The denial on Blaine's part makes me lean even more into being in the camp with all the past employees. Zach says, quote, after being all that being said, I'm definitely in the dis disappointed camp. It's a heartening feeling when your bubble bursts and your image of someone shatters. And then there's a couple more comments, but I, I, I'll, I'll spare them. If you want to check those out, they're always available. Um, that's one of the best parts about this new piece of um, software is that it's more evergreen. So you can go back and you can look at previous posts, which is really, really nice. All right, next up, Daniel Hume's new 11 Madison Park menu will be meat free. And this is a article from the Wall Street Journal. This made some waves on, on the internet this week. So let's talk about this change, why there were applauses, why there were some people being extra critical of this move, and what we can learn from this type of adjustment, especially under this powerful of a spotlight when you're previously best in the world, three Michelin stars, four stars New York Times, all that sorts of stuff. So quote, like most fine dining chefs, whom is best known for meat and seafood dishes, his legendary duck roasted with honey and lavender, lobster poached in mushroom butter, smoked sturgeon cheesecake with caviar. When it reopens on June 10th, 11 Madison Park will stop serving meat or seafood of any kind and make its dishes exclusively from plants, from vegetables, fruits, and fungi. Currently, there is only one three Michelin-starred restaurant that serves no meat or seafood, and that is called King jo King's Joy in Beijing. 11 Madison Park will not count as fully vegan because Hume will allow milk and honey for coffee and tea. Hume struggled a bit with this decision, concluding that he didn't want to deprive guests of pleasures, but to delight them with the possibility of plant-based cuisine, end quote. So huge change, obviously, right off the jump. This is, you know, the first piece of news that they're doing a plant-based menu, which is basically a far-flung departure from the previous menus where luxury products basically stole the stage. So let me get into one more quote before I go on here. Quote, and this is from Daniel Hume himself. Quote, when we set out on this journey, we promised ourselves that we would only do this if the meal could be as delicious as it was before. My goal is to create these beautiful dishes, give people beautiful experiences, unexpected, surprising experiences that make you feel satisfied as a meal with meat would. End quote. And I think I should start by addressing price points. The, the you know, people on social media have been 
putting this on blast and running with it. The first, the first being the price is $335 a person for this plant-based tasting menu. And the second piece is that Daniel Hume isn't the first person to do a plant-based menu. Those are kind of like the two big criticisms that people are gallivanting around with. And the issue is that he's doing, he's not the first person to do this. And yet for some reason he's getting all this press that, and he's not deserving of the notoriety because he's a white male chef, blah, blah, blah. So first off the price point, and they talk about the price. Let me actually read the quote. Cause I don't want to miss it. Um, where is this quote? Quote, while the raw materials in a meat free meal are cheaper, there is so much more labor involved in preparing them that there's no cost savings. So he's basically saying the costs for them turns out to be, you know, we'll, let's call it the same for, for sake of this argument. This actually isn't a cheaper to execute menu, right? When you buy a vacuum sealed hunk of A5 Wagyu or the back, the back door knocks and a styrofoam box of tins of caviar on ice come in or whole ducks that you plan on putting on a hook and aging and then just roasting them whole, you can do a two to four X markup on those ingredients and create relationships with those purveyors to maybe drive your cost down a bit. You can consistently get the product delivered, you know, kind of rotate through that, that product. You can create and iterate a few signature dishes and bam, that's been the blueprint for a lot of people going from wherever they are to getting Michelin stars. I'm not saying that entire process is easy, but there's a blueprint for it. And comparing that process of all those luxury ingredients coming in, those luxury pro-animal products coming in, comparing that process to anyone who's ever been a comi that's had to process vegetables from the farm, or if you've ever had a station where you're responsible for the vegetable garnish, it's not the same thing. Like, most line cooks know that being on a protein station is so much more intimidating to a certain extent because of the cost of the ingredients and the margin for error on internal temperatures of the proteins. It's the people who have to peel the tomatoes or make the onion petals or perfectly clean the radishes or shingle the turnip slices or make a perfectly smooth and bright green spinach puree. If anything, I'm hoping this motivates restaurants that are doing this combination of sourcing incredible product and doing above and beyond culinary work in their kitchens to raise their prices. Because I don't think it's unreasonable for someone to say, look at this article and they're saying to themselves, you know, we do just as much work as 11 Madison Park and their food cost is 18% because they're doing this plant-based menu. Our food cost is 35% because we're using foie and halibut and crab and caviar. Let's raise our prices a little bit. And getting onto that second point, the piece about 11 Madison Park not being the first plant-based restaurant with a tasting menu, I covered it at the top here, I don't necessarily agree that's the best take. Because none of these other places who have driven plant-based food forward have managed to build the infrastructure to be awarded three Michelin stars consistently, right? Just because you can compare the category of ingredients on dirt, candy, and 11 Madison Park's menu doesn't mean you're going to get the experience, the same experience at both. Just not true. And I'm not talking shit on Dirt Candy because she's been a maverick in making vegetables to star. She's clearly run her business for years, talking about consistency. And 
she's made a lot of impactful changes to how she runs her business. I don't know Chef Amanda, but there's clearly something in her that does, she like rejects three Michelin stars. She doesn't want to charge a lot of money. I saw this post that she made circulating around on Twitter where she was basically apologizing for raising her price on her tasting menu. I think it was from like $55 to $85 per person for her menu. It's like, charge what you need to charge, right? And I think this fallacy that like losing money and being a martyr for your food is the only way to get respect is harmful. It's actually toxic. It causes problems, ripple effects down the line. And so I go in the reverse with something like this. I very much so think that the quality of the experience at 11 Madison Park, between the atmosphere of the dining room, the table side presentations, if they're going to keep that going, the kitchen tour, being able to have a drink in their gorgeous bar, having these insane preparations that they're probably working on and flavor combinations that they're creating, and not to mention even the wine program, the front of house hospitality, it's all going to be worth the money in my thoughts. Again, I haven't been there. I've, I've eaten at 11 Madison Park in the protein days, had a full tasting menu. I've been there for drinks multiple times. It's going to be a great experience in the same way that going to Noma during vegetable season always seems to look incredible and inspiring. And every chef that is worth their creative salt looks at those dishes and they're like, fuck, man, that's fucking cool that they're doing that. So we're just going to have to see what happens. Continuing on, I have more points. The only point that I've seen circulating that is a change I hope to see is in relation to the question of, we don't have data on this yet. People are saying, okay, well, if it's 335 a person for the vegetable menu, and you're telling us that labor becomes your biggest expense, do you plan to pay your staff more? And that's yet to be seen. I certainly hope that's the case. I'm not saying that we have to, you know, completely put people's salaries through the roof, but this comes to an, an, an unfortunate concept that I've been grappling with kind of during this pandemic. And I, I haven't really shared this, but I, I plan on writing about it and making videos on it because I've been having these in siloed conversations with other friends of mine, whether it's like after a podcast interview or on a phone call. And it's in line with the concept of leverage that I've covered on previous podcasts with Chris Spear. And this is a way of looking at the world from Naval Ravikant. He says, businesses and people can apply leverage in one of three ways, media or product leverage. That's number one. So media or product leverage examples of that is like Joe Rogan's podcast or Beyonce's album that you stream on Spotify or the new app that you just downloaded on your phone. Those are all examples of that type of leverage. Then there's capital leverage, AKA money leverage. Basically this includes taking a leverage position in a, in a financial trade, buying real estate, you know, being able to put up money to allow a team to execute without having to, you know, make profit. Those, those types of um, examples are capital leverage. And then the last type of leverage is labor leverage or human leverage. And that's where most restaurants play in the human capital. They try to leverage human labor in order to, you know, spread their ideas or achieve, you know, some semblance of scale semblance of scale. And the, in any of these examples, media, capital, or human, the person who can get the cheapest leverage usually can get ahead faster. And notice I didn't say win. I said get ahead faster. 
people in the product world or the media world, they look for the cheapest clicks they can get or the cheapest distribution they can get when it comes to media. People in the capital world, you're always looking to borrow with the smallest amount of interest. You're trying to get the cheapest money you can find, the littlest down payment you can find. And in labor, you guessed it, you're looking for the folks that you can pay the least. And in restaurants and industries outside of ours that also use human leverage, this becomes the norm. And so unfortunately, I don't see there being proper incentive structures in place, even with this change happening, to make it worth it for 11 Madison Park to look at the constantly revolving door of labor and say, yep, we're going to pay more. Because they don't have to. Right? There's a line out the door of people who are not just willing, but excited to spend six months, three months, a year working there for less than market, take those skills, go off and do something else. And we can argue the morality of that until the cows come home. But they're effectively using, 11 Madison Park is using their product leverage and their capital leverage the product being the reputation and the brand of the three Michelin-starred New York Times accoladed 11 Madison Park. That's the first one. And the capital being their rolling capital, their profits from previous seasons. They have a ton of investors in their, in their ecosystem to float them during the pandemic and allow them to take risks like this to achieve that labor leverage. And that's their business model. And listen, I've had dear friends of mine work at 11 Madison Park and it's either given them life-changing industry experience, they have a massive network of people now, and they now have the resume to move wherever they want. Maybe they learned some amazing techniques, they learned how to work clean, and they got to live in New York City. And it's all their decision. They're not being forced to do this. And they were able to take value from that experience, and it wasn't strictly monetary. Maybe they didn't get paid amazingly, but look at all those other things that they got. It's part of the experience. And that's what makes it a win for both parties. And as long as that exists, I find it hard to believe that they're going to flip it all on its head and, you know, change, change it, everything, you know, in some structural way. Maybe 11 Madison Park gets approached by a New York media company and they're able to get more media leverage or they come out with more cookbooks or what have you. But that's kind of my rant on, like, the current state of labor leverage in the industry and why we're seeing this dynamic consistently play out of how can you use other types of leverage to get cheap labor and that's just how it is and i i realize that i'm i'm saying two things out of the same mouth i want people to get paid more i want there to be more opportunities for people but i also lived that life of being young and hungry and wanting to squeeze the most out of an experience that I could. And I felt like I was getting an equal trade on the other side. If you're someone to, uh, to hearken back to our last story, if you feel like Lummi Island can do that for you and you can go work there for a little while, take those skills and go do something of your own, then it's an e then it might be an equal trade for you. If it's a case of you grew up on Lummi Island and your mom wants you to go get a dishwashing job and you have no desire to work your way up the brigade or be a chef, and you're just getting exploited because you're a, you know what I mean? Different scenario. Same working environment, different relationship. And so I don't look at staging or working for free as a bad thing or working for less than 
you know, whatever the normal salary would be as a bad thing because I didn't work in those environments forever. I spent time there. I took what I could and then I moved on. So again, there's a little bit of context and nuance and we know the world doesn't like nuance. Okay, continuing on. Quote, this is another interesting piece. Quote, the cost of every meal served of these $335 will incorporate the cost of producing additional meals for hungry New Yorkers. His first, he first did this with a pickup service his team created in October, 11 Madison Home. When the restaurant reopens, each tasting menu will cover the cost of five meals and be delivered by 11 Madison Park truck run by the same team that is cooking the high-priced meals. Everyone who, quote, everyone who touches EMP, the staff, the guests, the purveyors will help feed the city, end quote. That's from Daniel Hume at the end. And this is the other piece in the announcement that really tripped people up, I think, because it's these opposing forces, right, of can't afford a meal that's literally two orders of magnitude higher than what a regular meal costs. It's very expensive. And on the other hand, it's using funds and resources from that project to engage folks that need help. And so this next quote provides a little bit more context. Quote, Now, Chef Hume was confronted with a set of goals that seemed to contradict each other. He wanted to run a restaurant that offered guests an experience that was... An that was elegant and delicious and as magical as possible. But he also wanted to embrace all of New York, including the poorest and most needy. And he began to realize he wanted to embed his ethical commitments to the food itself. Our practices of animal production, what we're doing to the oceans, and the amount we consume, it's just not sustainable. If 11, if 11 Madison Park is truly at the forefront of dining and culinary innovation, to me it's crystal clear that this is the only place to go next. End quote. And a little bit of that, like, malice was attributed to, like, oh, well, you're giving these meals away for free, and you have the resources to do that, and you're making people work more, but you can't afford to pay them more. And we haven't seen that yet. You know what I mean, everybody? Like, we, we don't know what that's going to look like. And again, even if that's the case, and you get the chance to work in this, like, super high-speed, uh, high-caliber kitchen, and then you get to do this thing for good on the side... If you do it for a year or two while you're young and single, it could really set you up to do some really cool things later on, you know? So, like, where's the line is my question. And so where do my thoughts land here overall? What's the lesson? What's up with Daniel Home wearing this $2,000 white designer coat on a farm? I think they thought this through immensely. I'm sure there were countless meetings about this. I think that the split that happened between Will Gadara and Daniel Hume put 11 Madison Park in a semi-vulnerable place, combo that with COVID, and I think that puts increased pressure on the kitchen to charge ahead with a creative vision, because it's not just on both sides of the house, it's now solely on the kitchen, and ultimately I think whom is probably wanting to make the restaurant a place where New Yorkers get excited about going again after COVID, right? And what's trendier now than a concept that gives back, a concept that's plant-based, a concept that's intentionally hamstringing themselves in the name of working within constraints? That's all trendy right now. And I can only imagine that there isn't immense pressure on them to make tons of money because you know, they have this infrastructure financially of investors 
and remaining relevant is much more considered here over profit. And in a city that's so who's who as New York and it's so relationship focused, I think they're going to be just fine. And him wearing that coat, that white designer coat on the farm playing with dirt and goats is right in line with that. It's so fucking smart. He wants to be the person that the Soho apartment dweller who's never considered going to 11 Madison Park because they saw it as this stuffy midtown Manhattan place looks at Daniel Hume in that article and says, I kind of want to go try that. I think it's a play at a younger audience. I think you aren't going to sell them on this super masculine, fly in the Wagyu, white tablecloth style experience. Put the chef in a designer coat, photograph them playing with goats, and give back to the community from a plant-based menu execution. It's like that Drake meme, right? Like, I don't want the super masculine thing, but then it's like, oh yeah, I want that one. And quickie last quote, I want to make sure I get the quote right from the beginning. Oh, I, I already I already did the quote um, about the pricing piece, about how labor is going to make up for the cost savings, quote-unquote, that they might be making um, with ingredients. So, as always, this show isn't just about my thoughts. I want to hear what you have to say as well, so please let me know what you're thinking in the comments down below or tweet at me with hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Now, this piece made some light waves. I'll call them light. I, I, I didn't see the theme covered that I wanted to, or that I was most struck by covered as people were sharing this around. So we're going to cover it here. And it's a profile by Outside Magazine on Chef Joshua Skeens. And it's called, quote, This oddball chef wants to serve you wild animals, end quote. Ooh, right? And it's very in line with the Lumi Island piece and the overall theme of these solo episodes. And this is a news story that I not only shared in the community, but I also send this out as part of the 8020 Edge newsletter. That's also something that's new since we've probably last spoken on a solo podcast episode. And so if you aren't subscribed there yet, quick shameless plug again, it arrives in your inbox every week. And I talk about asymmetric upside, how to sharpen your skills and work in this industry in a more sustainable way. And so you can usually hear about some of these stories first if you're subscribed there. That's also in the description. So let's start with a quote. Quote, ferociously ambitious chef reaches top of a culinary world and realizes he can still hit a higher target only by hunting and killing wild animals and serving them at the source. Stymied by law and regulation, he cobbles together a workaround. He buys and builds a wilderness estate where he can live in a rural splendor doing what he loves most, hunting and fishing and foraging. He includes a laboratory element that coincidentally involves support staff and cooking facilities that are the equal of the world's finest restaurants. Then adds gorgeous guest cabins spaced widely over the property and charges some totally bonkers price per night so he can invite those guests to his own spectacular manor home for the greatest free dinners ever eaten, eaten by human beings. End quote. And if this semi- summary slash teaser floats your boat if you want to see how someone is approaching a concept like this please go ahead and read the article there are a ton of themes that i think we've touched on before i've been critical of skeins in previous episodes i've eaten at saison and angler i think the food at both rivals some of the best restaurants in the world his ability to cook and um source and present is not what i'm critical of here We've talked about projects that 
you know, cater to the 1% of the 1% before as well. And if you know anything about the 1000 True Fans article, you know that you can still get niched down incredibly small and still find your audience. A uh, fun thing that, you know, you numbers nerds might actually get excited about is that I saw this quote from Jack Butcher on his Twitter that basically said, quote, if only the point zero 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 one percent of the internet population buy from you, you still have 4,000 customers, end quote, because there's something like 4.5 billion people online. And so I'm actually not surprised that he's finding people to sign up for these experiences. And I'm actually approaching this whole article from a bit of a different angle. And I need to continue on with this piece because it's painting him, the, the author of the piece is painting him as a genius in one dimension. And I think that's easy. But across the board, him as a person, him as a boss, him as a coworker, partner, I don't think it's that simple. Quote, Curiously, Skeens' peers are reluctant to speak on the record about him. Plausible explanations include his ferocious personality and unconventional path. Ambitious chefs typically cut their teeth through years of grinding apprenticeship in big-name restaurants around the world, honing others' methods before striking out on their own. They also, forge, they also typically forge close alliances with colleagues. Skeens skipped most of that and somehow still rocketed to the top of the game. End quote. And this has been echoed from other analyses of top performers outlining the cost of success. And the trope is you can't just cherry pick all of Elon Musk's technical knowledge and money and meme making on Twitter. You also have to take his sleepless nights and stomach wrenching risk and potentially shallow relationships and his dissatisfaction that's constantly plaguing him to do new things and all of that. And what's important, and the lesson that I hope I'm sharing with this piece, is to acknowledge both and accept that everybody has different versions of success. And then you can choose and traverse your path accordingly versus attempting to mimic your heroes with a disappointing outcome. Because, again, you can't cherry-pick individual things. And it's so frustrating, too, because even looking at this article... You know when they, they have the article and then they do that section in the middle of the article where they make a quote from it super big, and so if you're the person that's just skimming, you will skim just that piece? That last quote I read, talking about ferocious personality, not getting along with colleagues, they typically forge close alliances, but they skeen skip most of that. They write that in a way where, that, where it doesn't acknowledge the negatives about his relationships with people. And so it's like, what are we encouraging? Are we encouraging this kind of like, fuck cutting your teeth, fuck getting experience, fuck forging relationships, just go do it by yourself because you're a genius and you can just do it alone? And that's all I basically really wanted to say. I think that Josh Skeens should be able to do whatever he wants as long as it's within legal bounds and he's clearly finding a way to work around this whole thing. Clearly. He's too smart for all of us. And whatever it is about his current setup, there isn't satisfaction or fulfillment to be found for him in an environment like Saison or Angler or in this kind of fine dining circuit of Michelin life, San Francisco, L.A. And 
there seems to be this deeper psychological obstacle that he's grappling with. Feels misunderstood, potentially. And this provides that outlet for him, and it gives him the right mixture of exclusivity and control. And as far as I know, he's being self-aware enough to acknowledge, I don't actually function well in an environment where I'm running a 60-person team, so I'm going to buck that. I'm going to do it in a way where I can only work with, again, exclusivity and control, which more aligns with my strengths, and that's what I'm going to lean into. So as much as I hope that he's able to reach a true state of happiness and satisfaction in his work, I'm also wanting to make sure that we as an industry call that for what it is, and we acknowledge the downsides of having qualities like that. Because he's clearly not the best chef to work for. He's clearly not the best chef to do business with. And notice that I can be complimentary to his cooking ability and his ingenuity and his drive and his vision, but I can also be critical of other aspects. I don't want there to be this sense that I have a beef with the guy or that I don't respect him, but putting this stuff up on a pedestal, this you can be a dick and still skyrocket to the top of the game or whatever the fucking journalist said, that's how we get people who don't have his type of self-awareness, feeling like they have permission to do it. And what they'll do is they'll use this excuse, even if they don't say it explicitly, they'll, they'll have it running in the back of their head after they read a piece like this, they'll say, well, I saw that one guy who does this. And that's all that people need as permission to continue to behave like this. And then that becomes their MO, and they use it as almost this like pass to be a dickhead. Because if I just keep it up for long enough, if I just get to that point, someone else will write about me in the way that I saw. You know what I mean? I think you see where I'm going. And it's not a fair, it's all—it's not always a fair comparison, but I think you kind of get my gist. So that is all. Do I have any other quotes? Nope, I don't. So what else do we have? Direct answer. Question came in from a gentleman named Sebastian. He said, I just got an offer. Direct answer. Sorry, I should go back. Direct answer is where you folks send me a DM and then I share it with everybody with a little bit more contextual advice that I have time to think about. Um, I, I respond to the DMs, but I answer them here to help more people than just the person who asked the DM. So Sebastian asks, I just got an offer working in Barcelona at some fine dining restaurants for my chef, but he says there's a lot of Comey competition, jealousy, and sabotage. Do you have any tips or are you familiar with this? And I'll read my response and then I'll maybe go rant a little bit more. My camera's going to run out of storage soon, so I want to go quickly. I say, the politics can be really hard. Your best bet is to be the best communicator and be super well organized. And over time, that will stand out more versus the negative behavior. Again, what's he saying? The competition, the jealousy, the sabotage. And it will serve you better once you get a promotion. And then that's kind of where I ended it. But to go a little bit deeper, he seemed satisfied with my answer, so I didn't really go any deeper. I think he got what I was saying. If you use these cheap tactics to get ahead or make yourself stand out or bolster, I'll call it like use it as a crutch, right? Like if you aren't actually good, if your technique is not great, if you're not inherently organized, if you don't possess the skills to communicate well, you can use all these little nitty, politicky, sabotagey 
oh, he told me to do this, or I, there's people who just like, they delegate half of their prep list to the kitchen through intimidation. And what ultimately happens is those people either don't have long enough of a tenure or once they get to a point where they have to manage other people, they get their promotion or they have more of a challenge with themselves or they reach a point where accountability strictly falls on them. They either fall to pieces or these negative behaviors get amplified even more. And that's when you start to see really shitty things like yelling and screaming and name calling and berating and all that sorts of stuff. And so even though when you're young and you are seeing other people make progress, quote unquote, faster than you in the long run. And I can say this as someone who like, I didn't scream in kitchens. I didn't use any of this language. I, I, I did my best to break that cycle. I can sit here in front of all of you and I'm not even 30 yet saying that it was the right choice. And so making that cool, cool, quote unquote, that's what I'm hoping to do. And I, I, I can tell you from my own personal experience, that's the only thing I can speak from, is it's the better path. Because funny enough, you can actually be a badass chef by communicating better than anybody else, by being super clear and understood at the drop of a hat. People just get you, which gives you speed, right? We're talking about moving faster and being really well organized, you're not scrambling all over the place. We talk about this in the Demi Skills course. And so all that's kind of said to say, um, I hope that there's, uh, you know, some value there. And I, I, I'm on such a soapbox with like wanting to make this uh, something that I put out more. And I'm having a feeling that this is a point in my career where I'm fine. I've finally landed on like, yep, this is what I'm all about. And so for everybody that's been following for ages and ages, you might see this kind of percolate more and you might start to see me repeating myself for potentially like the first time in my content creating thing. I've been seeking the new stuff over and over again, but it's like the tried and tested things, the lessons, the principles that I'd really believe in that I want to teach a lot. And so I'm excited for it, but just I'm saying it now because I can only imagine from people that are three steps ahead of me on the ladder they get berated with, well, you say the same thing every single time. You always give the same answers, blah, blah, blah. And it's true. It's because it works. Anyways, if you want to check out upcoming guests, my production assistant does a really awesome job of creating confirmed pages on the website. JustinConnor.com slash media is where you find that. You can see who's scheduled in. You can pop your questions in the comments. I can't promise that I'll ask every single one, but it's a cool way to see who's coming up and also interact with that. It's not something that all podcasts let you do. And so I'm hugely grateful for the folks that support the content and financially make it possible for me to do that kind of production on the front end. And hopefully, as I get cooler and cooler guests on, that will be something that uh, engages some of you folks even more. It's really, really great to be back with you talking some industry news. Until next time, my name's Justin Kana, and I hope you folks have a good one. Roll the outro. What's up? Justin here again, because, I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online. 
all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I published that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development-focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnacom support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.